Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. So we've been making our way through Romans, and this last chapter we did is, in my opinion, the hardest chapter that you can do in Romans. It requires us to hold in tension a number of the things that we've already learned and to make room for things that our culture finds repugnant or nonsensical. And so uh, I probably could have and should have done more preparation for this. I don't really know how, but I know that when I was done preaching, there was still a number of questions left that people have been uh, communicating with me about. So I hope that as we continue to go through these chapters together, that we will flesh this out more and that things will fall in line better. And that when this is all over, we feel like we really understand this book. So we're going to continue plugging along. Uh, I believe everything that we covered in worship this last Sunday was worthy. And so I don't think any of this is a waste of time. Otherwise, I would edit it out or I wouldn't put it out. So I hope that this is a helpful reflection for you. If you couldn't be in worship on Sunday, if you couldn't participate with us, I want to urge you, if, if you're a person who listens to this podcast and you're not plugged into a church, you just like, uh, the message that I preach, it's just fine. Uh, continue to to listen and receive encouragement and biblical knowledge, but it's not just fine that you're not plugged into a local church. Um, so I want to urge you to uh, find a body of believers close to you that you can learn to love and let love you. Because uh, the last thing I want to do is scratch a spiritual itch so that people are not inclined to go into the church building, uh, engage the church people, that would really be just, uh, I would feel terrible about that if I was helping people feel good about staying out of the church. So please receive my encouragement. Make it a priority to um, know and be known by a body of believers somewhere that can look you in your face, grab your hand, pray with you, love you, encourage you, correct you. These are things that we need the church for. Okay, I'm going to stop preaching at you and let you hear me preaching at my people from last Sunday. Blessings to you. It's time to turn to God's holy word together. We're in Romans chapter 7, and if you're following with me in your pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 1753 in your pew Bibles. Now, there's no way for me to, in a timely way, abbreviate all that we have heard thus far, but this letter is written by Paul to the church in Rome, which is composed of people who are both Gentiles before Jesus and Jews before Jesus. Jews are under the law of Moses, often called the Mosaic Law or Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic from Moses. They have been following the law that we have contained in our Old Testament. The Gentiles were not following such a law before they came to Christ Jesus. They're trying to hold together as a community And yet the Jews are trying to make the case that they are closer to God than the Gentiles because they're children of Abraham, because they're children of the promise, that God is showing favoritism with them. And Paul has been writing chapter after chapter saying, nope, God shows no partiality. 
Now, the temptation then would be to say the Jews had nothing special. There is nothing special in the law or the prophets, the promises, the patriarchs. And Paul categorically says that's not true either. They were given a great treasure in the law and in the heritage of Moses and in the circumcision. All of these things are great treasures. But even so, Jew and Gentile alike under Christ are all born in sin and are all in need of redemption and, and repentance. So this is something that he's been categorically preaching without confusion throughout the book. Now, we live in an era where a lot of churches, a lot of people, they do not read books through the way that we do, the way that we are right now. They read little snippets, and they take comfort where they can. And there are a lot of people who take comfort in a verse that we're going to hear today, and they draw a meaning opposite what Paul means for us to. And the only way you see that is when you hold it together with the rest of the book. This is the hardest chapter we're going to talk through because we're going to feel like we're reviewing a lot of the stuff that we've heard before, and yet the new stuff is so important that we really need to hold on to it. So today we're talking about the nature of sin in, in believers, well, in, in all people. All people are born in sin. And I, I shared a, a quote this week. I put it in my weekly mailing. I, I, I shared it on Facebook. This is a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The terrible tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all of man's troubles are due to his environment and that to change the man you have nothing to do but change his environment that is a tragic fallacy it overlaps the it overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that men fell no matter what you surround us with humans are born in sin we're born wrong. We're born broken on the inside. We're born inclined towards evil and that continually. And if not for Jesus supernaturally touching us, working a miracle, you and I could not turn to righteousness. What happens to save each and every one of us is a miracle, something earth-shattering. That's how much God loves us, that he sent his son Jesus to die for us, because if he didn't, we would all still be dead in our sins. That is the gospel message. There is no message to be found outside of that in the Bible. In the Bible, if you find something in the Bible saying humans are born basically good and we can make a good world by changing our environment, we can make humans good, that is a lie from Satan. He wants us continually fighting over policy and politics and how we can shape the world to our liking so that we're not focused on our inward selves and getting right with Jesus. The more he gets us spun up about things outside of us, the less we look on the inside of us. Romans the whole Bible calls us to look inside, to get right with Jesus inside, so that no matter what happens outside of our bodies, our spirits are right with Jesus, and we will be with him on the last day. It is the opposite of the world's message. So last week, chapter 6, we were talking about God's grace being stronger than sin, even so we died to sin, and we're not slaves to sin any longer. He says, anything you serve is your master. And if you are persisting in sin, then you are a slave to sin. And the wages of sin is death. So if you want to die eternally, be separated from God in agony, then continue sinning. Go ahead. But if you want to be with him for all eternity, if you want to feel his presence and power, if you want the comfort and ministry of the Holy Spirit, then you need to receive Christ. You need to be born again in Christ. You need to walk in newness of life. That is the invitation throughout the Bible, throughout this book. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 7 with going back to the law. Is the law good or bad? 
It's good. Okay, very good. And I, I meant to just present that as rhetorical, but I'm glad y'all answered because we live in an era where there are people like Andy Stanley, who's a megachurch pastor, who says that the Old Testament is not important, that we need to de decouple the New Testament from the Old Testament. That's heresy. Every book in the Bible is essential for salvation. If it's not essential for salvation, it's not in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, it's essential for salvation. Old Testament is bigger than New Testament. All of that's important. All of it is good. All of it points towards Jesus. But if we don't have the right doctrine, we're going to write off the Old Testament in favor of the New, and something big is lost there. So let's, we're going to talk about that here. Chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers and sisters... For I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's talking to the ones who came out of Judaism. He's not talking about Roman law. He's talking about the Old Testament law. I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive... She is, and he's saying rightfully, she is rightfully called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Okay, so he's using a worldly example to explain how it is that we're in relationship with the law. And he's saying when a woman's husband dies, of course it's fine for her to enter into this lifelong covenant with another man. But if her husband is still alive, then that's the definition of adultery. You're sleeping with someone you're not married to. And uh, I'm not going to turn this into a marriage sermon. Jesus talks a lot about marriage and divorce. We can preach about that some other time. Here, the main point that he's making is some things don't extend past death. The law of the Old Testament does not extend past death. So if you die, you are freed from that law. That's what he's saying. When you, when you die, you are freed from all kinds of laws. This is one of them. Verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. So wait, did we already die? He's saying we've been freed from the law. He's saying you can only be freed by death. So did we die? If you paid attention to my sermon last week, you know we did. Yeah, if you are born again in Christ Jesus, born again, you had to die to be born again. We died to sin and death. We also died to the law. He, he's been talking in the previous chapter to the Gentiles. He said, you died to sin. Now he's talking to the Jews. He's saying, you died to the law. Uh, I'm going to start verse 4 over again. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Who do we belong to that was raised from the dead? Jesus. That was an easy one. Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, lives for us eternally. Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, that's, that's the realm of the world, Sarx. Sarx, the realm of the flesh is without the power and presence of God, under the ruler of the power of the air, Satan. When we were there, and all of us were born there, all of us were born under the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. So he's saying the law, so all of us were born in sin, and then some of us received the law, but what the law did was it aroused our passions. If you've read the Old Testament, if you've read the laws, it's, I've been using this metaphor all throughout, and I'm going to continue using it. It's, sin is like cancer. Cancer, of course, is an unwelcome growth in your body that grows out of control and eventually kills you. That's what sin does in a spiritual sense. 
So in a spiritual sense, there are those who know what's killing them and there are those who don't know what's killing them, but they're all going to die from it. There are some who we're all born with this cancer that's going to grow in us and kill us. Some understand where it is, what kind of cancer it is, how fast it's going to move. Others don't. The Jews who had the law understood the nature of their cancer, but they couldn't fight it. And he's saying here, the law actually made it worse, actually made it worse. So if I know that there's some cancer inside of me and it's bothering me and I'm rubbing on it, I'm spreading it around my body, that's kind of what the law does. It makes it so our sin is even worse when we see it and we're powerless against it. Verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, that's the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we who are in Christ, who have died to self, been born again, we are under a new law, the law of the Spirit, the law of love. We walk in a new way, not the old way. Now, the old way, he's not saying the law is bad. He's going to come to this over and over. In fact, in verse 7, he's going to come to it. He's saying that the law reveals us as bad and even makes us worse when we see ourselves as bad. So let's look at that. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. By no means. God forbid. Different translations, same thing. Is the law sinful? No. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was well, okay, I'm going to stop there because that is a, a weird sentence we're going to treat on its own. But before here, he's just using an example of coveting. Coveting is the 10th commandment, right? Thou shalt not covet. Don't covet. Do we naturally know that coveting is a sin? Not really. Most people outside of Christ think it's just a normal, natural part of life. Coveting, of course, is desiring something that isn't yours. So looking with envy upon what someone else has and desiring it for yourself, whether it be a car or a wife or a house or money or status all of that is coveting and it's all sin would i know that with if not for the law he says i i wouldn't he's saying the law is what showed me that coveting is a sin but then he says when i didn't have jesus and i only had the law it just made me want to covet more as i kicked against it more and more as i fought against it more and more all kinds of coveting came about in my life and i was worse off than before i knew it he says that's what the law does. It makes us aware of our cancer, and then the cancer grows even more. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of sin having root in me. For apart from the law, sin was dead. That is a problematic sentence right there. There is no way he means that. If he's saying that there's actually no sin, if the law isn't given, then the most hateful thing you can do to someone is tell them the law. Because they're not living in sin. They're not living in sin until they know about it. That is, that is not what he's saying. That cannot be what he's saying. It doesn't fit with anything that came before. doesn't fit with anything that comes after. Okay? He already said in chapter 1, all of us were born in sin in our deep innermost nature. In Ephesians, he spends like a whole chapter on it. There is no way that Paul means this how it sounds. And this is, this is a larger problem. There are a lot of people who read what they want in the Bible and they take little snippets and they don't feel any need to put it together. They just go, well, it doesn't fit, so I'm just going to cherry-pick the parts that fit for me, that make sense to me. And that is the surest way to, to manufacture a God of your own choosing and not the true God that has witnessed to us who he is. 
you tell me. When the Bible is put together over the course of a thousand years by dozens of authors in different times and places, do you think it's more likely that they will be talking about God in exactly the same way, in exactly the same language, or do you think that there's likely to be some confusion along the way and some things aren't going to naturally fit together as easily? And you can tell where my mind is. There are some things that do not seem to fit. Now, that doesn't mean they don't fit. That means that we have to have the right understanding to see how they fit. What he's conveying here is not that humans are sinless until they receive the law. That is not what he is saying. That doesn't fit with any. He is saying when the law comes, it makes sin so much worse. And that's what he's going to be talking about throughout the rest of this chapter. But he is absolutely not saying that the law is bad or that it causes people to sin. Rather, he's saying it makes people aware of their sin and then their sin grows. So we're going to see that more and more as we go through. All right, I lost my place. We're in verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So, once again, this ties into this idea that cannot be right. There is no world in which it's better to be a Gentile than a Jew. Otherwise, the Old Testament is just the meanest thing ever written. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. So think of that commandment, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou uh, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. There are lots of different commandments. He's saying they, they are supposed to bring about life, but because of the sin in me, they actually bring about death. Sin warps it, corrupts it, distorts it, perverts it. That's what sin does. Takes something good, makes it evil. Verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. The good commandment. Through the good commandment, sin seized me and put me to death. So then, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. He's, he's saying the Old Testament's good. You can't take away from it. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? Okay, so did it cause me to sin? No. Did it kill me? By no means, no. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. So he's, he's, he's saying he's laying on the same foundation. The Old Testament is good. The law is good. All of it's good. The part that's bad is me and the sin in me. And when the good out there comes into me, the sin that's in me messes it up. So if anybody knows the Lord of the Rings universe by J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a, a Christian who wrote this fantasy to sort of fit with Christian theology, the bad guys are the orcs. But the orcs are not actually a different creature. They are the elves who were good, distorted, perverted, tortured by the powers of darkness and made into dark creatures. And that's us. Our original design in the Garden of Eden was to be pure and perfect and good to be perfect reflections of God. And then we got distorted by sin, and the sin that's in us takes those good things outside of us and warps them and distorts them inside of us so that good things will be showered upon us and we will still persist in sin. That's how wicked we are. That's how insidious sin is. Verse 14. Does this sound like good news so far? No, but I'm not talking about Jesus yet. The, bad, the, the news before Jesus is bad, 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 bad. We're talking about the bad right now. 
John Wesley is known to have a quote. He says, you cannot receive the good until you understand the bad. He says, any pastor worth his salt is going to preach 90% law, 10% grace. Otherwise, you're just not going to get it. Verse 14. By the way, do I preach 90% law and condemnation? No, I don't. You know I don't. It's more like 50. I'd like to think I'm doing 50-50, but what, anyway, God can judge me. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. The Old Testament law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He's speaking for all humanity right now. All of us are sold as a slave to sin when we're born. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. This is not Paul speaking about himself as a sanctified Christian. There's no way this fits. This is how people want to read it. They want to say, well, if Paul was powerless against sin, what chance do I have? He is speaking in the place of all humans. He's saying, this is what all humans are like. We're all born in sin. We're all powerless against it. We can't even see the sinful things we do. That's human nature. He's speaking as every man right now. Verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Does this fit with everything we've talked about so far? If you say no, I'm going to say all the same stuff over again. Verse 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. We're all born in sinful nature. There is no good in me. That's the doctrine of the fall. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. This should be something that all of us should be familiar with if we've lived for any period as an adult outside of Christ. We think we can understand what's good. We can come up with black, white, right, wrong, good, bad, what I should do, what I shouldn't do. The philosophers, people of all ages, nations, and races outside of Christ have had these notions, but they can't do it because they're slaves to sin. The law of their mind tells them what's good and bad, the law of sin within them brings them into sin, whether they want to be there or not. That's the nature of things outside of Jesus. He's painting a picture of what life is like outside of Jesus. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Well, does that mean that I get off scot-free? No. The sin is warping me. I'm, I'm made evil by my sin that I make room for in me. Let's, let's, let's take a, 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 just a brief pause. If we're being realistic, the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians today are very familiar with this phenomenon where they want to do good and they just can't do it, where they don't want to do bad and they fall into it again. And the temptation there is to go, oh, no big deal. But when you wrote, read Romans, you go, well, you're unconverted then. Christ might have started something in you, but he has not completed it. You haven't let him. You've continued to make a, a home in yourself for sin, and sin is continuing to warp you, and you need to let the Holy Spirit take that sin out of you. You need to die to your old self and be born again. Otherwise, that sin is going to drag you into hell, no matter how much you say you love Jesus, no matter how much you sing his praises, no matter how many times you come sit in a pew, no matter how much money you give to the church, if you continue to make room for sin in your life, if you continue to war with your flesh and there is no victory in the spirit, you are in trouble. And the pastor's job is not to make you feel good about it and to comfort you in your sin. That's, that's what an agent of Satan does. 
This is not a place of Satan where we convince each other that our sin is not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. The wages of sin is. It means that when it says it. So when we continue to make a home for sin in ourselves, we are welcoming death and, and destruction. And I love you too much then to act like that's not going on. If you persist in sin, quit it. Stop it. Repent. Let's finish the chapter, verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. God's law is good. God's law is perfect. God's love is, law is spiritual. Verse 23. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind. So the law of my mind loves the law of God. But there's another law in me that's doing combat against my mind. That's the law of sin. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, once again, Paul has already been saved. He's been sanctified. He's been walking in the light for decades at this point. When he's saying this, he's not saying that about himself. He's still in every man mode. He's been in this mode for a few paragraphs now. He's been saying, this is how you and I were both born, and this is how you have continued to walk because you haven't been born again. He's highlighting all of us need to be born again. Otherwise, we will be wretched men, and we will be subjected to death in these bodies that are still enslaved to sin. That's what he's, that's what he's living out for him. This is a dramatic... Uh, monologue that he's doing for the benefit of his readers who are not converted. They're drawn to Christ, but they don't understand what that means. That means that they are now dead to the law and alive in Christ. Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so we've spent all that time in bad news. Finally, some good news. God has delivered me. How? Through Jesus Christ, my Lord. What does Lord mean? Boss. He gave me a boss. He has delivered me from my sinful nature, the law of sin within me by the boss, Jesus. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So he's holding up these two opposites, the, the, the law of sin prevailing in me and the law of Christ prevailing in me. And the way I'm so confident about that is because I keep reading. So look at verse, you already closed your Bible. You shouldn't have done that. Chapter 8. This is immediately what comes right afterwards. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit. That's a different law. So you had the law of sin that makes a home and you were born in it. There's the law of your mind that discerns good and bad. But we can't do it while the law of sin reigns. So there's a law of the Spirit that comes into us. At the moment of justification, when the law of the Spirit comes in, that gives life. And has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul is talking about this because he's lived it. So this language in chapter 7 that seems to be permissive of, hey, I've been following Jesus forever, and I'm still struggling with the body, and I'm still struggling in sin and persistent sin. That's not what he's doing there. He's doing a dramatic retelling of their lives to them to show what's wrong with it. They think they're doing right. They're still wrong. And he's saying there needs to be a new birth. A law of the Spirit dwelling in you, reigning in you, because you have a Lord, a boss, Jesus, who has saved you. Amen? So we'll pick up there next week. We'll pick up with that good news in chapter 8, the power and the presence of the Spirit. But we needed to understand chapter 7. There, 
I, when we first came to it, I might have wrongfully given you the impression that the doctrine of the fall is something we just touch on but not sit on. No, we're sitting on this doctrine. We're sitting on it because it's that important. That's what's dividing the church right now. That's what's dividing our denomination. I sit firmly on the, the right-leaning, traditional, orthodox, conservative side of the division in our denomination. Those on the left side, generally, I'm sure there are exceptions, but generally do not accept the doctrine of the fall, that we are born in sin and inclined towards evil continually. The, the heresy that they are guilty of is called Pelagianism. That's what the quote I shared with you in the beginning was. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who believes that humans are born capable of good and evil and can do either, and it's our surroundings that determine how we are. There was an ancient guy, Pelagius, who taught the same thing, that humans are neither good nor bad, that we're born inclined uh, in whichever direction our environment is, and that, that we need to shift the world according to that. That's heresy, historically. Her this is not my opinion. This is long-standing Christian doctrine. When people refuse to acknowledge that we're born in sin, inclined towards evil and death, then they refuse to acknowledge the whole need for Jesus. And indeed, the people on the other side of the aisle from me would say that what happened on the cross did not need to happen because God did not need to move heaven and earth to save us because we can do good when we're just instructed in good ways. That's not what the gospel says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you and I were born dead men and that Christ has made us alive and we couldn't have done that ourselves. So we have to understand the bad news to receive the good. Otherwise, I don't know what we're doing here. To be quite honest with you, I don't know why a lot of churches have kept their doors open. I don't know what they're doing. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about a different Jesus than the Bible is. So, you know, I'm really glad. I, I'm, this is the last thing I'm going to say. We've been preaching through a chapter of the Bible each week for several weeks now, for like three months. And over that time, many of you have come to me and said, this is really meaningful to me. You know, it's much more meaningful than just getting a snippet here and snippet here and weaving them all together. Jeffrey, we need to do more of this. And you know what? I agree now. You know, and it's not that we've never done this before, but now God is really speaking to at least some of us. Maybe some of you are just bored to tears with this. I'm sorry. Except I'm not sorry. I mean, this is, these are wonderful words of life, and we've only got this one life to dwell on God's word and be changed by it. So, so that's my prayer as we end worship together. My prayer is that God's holy word does shift you so that you hear worldly people differently so that you don't fit in with them so that you live differently so that you feel differently so that you love what god loves so you hate what god hates so that you walk in newness of life so that you're saved that's what we're doing here is that a good and worthy purpose i agree